there is so much we can learn from each other and together. Welcome to Nook Podcast. We are sharing wisdom from the community to nourish the growth of every listener. I'm your host, Parker. Let's dive in. that society has like this idealized vision of marriage i think Mm. they have an idealized picture of the love at first sight that's the part that i think is fake well thank you for coming to record um so why don't we just start with um where you grew up And let's go from there. Okay, so I'm Allison, Mm -hmm. and I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, specifically Crown Heights. And uh, both of my parents are from the Caribbean. They're from St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and they immigrated the year before I was born. So out of my sisters and I, I was the only, I am the only person in my entire family who's born in the U.S. Oh. Every other person has been born in St. Vincent. Hmm. So my parents came in 1985. I was born in 86. And then uh, I met my sisters in 1990. I'm sure they were not excited to have a toddler as a little sister out of nowhere. And we grew up in Brooklyn. Hmm. Wait, what do you mean they met? you met them in 1990? Because they were in the Caribbean? Yeah, so oh. when my family, when my parents came, they left my sisters with my grandma. But, you know, I'm sure that happens in a lot of immigrant families where the parents come to the U.S. first to establish themselves, mm-hmm. to get their documents together, to mm-hmm. get money together, to get their apartment and their living space together. So my parents came in 85. I was born in 86. And then my mom was able to get her immigration status and get the money together in order to file for my sisters to mm-hmm. then come here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it actually... In 1990, we went down to Barbados to pick them up from my aunt's house, and then we flew. So Mm -hmm. I met them in Barbados officially, but nonetheless, I met them in 1990, Mm -hmm. and then they came to the U.S. Um, I did not know that about you. What was that experience like? Well, I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess you're pretty young. (laughs) I don't remember. Um, For them, it was jarring. Like, Mm -hmm. they talk about it, and I ask them a lot of questions about it, because... Like, my sister, my middle sister, Sophia, she came when she was six. Mm -hmm. And then my oldest sister, she came when she was nine. Mm -hmm. And they're coming to the U.S. They came in January. So it's Mm -hmm. the first time they ever experienced cold. Mm -hmm. And even though my my parents got them jackets and stuff, but it's still not the same. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then they had to get into uh, an American system of schooling. They were around children who maybe were not the most respectful. They're not accustomed to that, Mm -hmm. right? There's not as much structure as it is in the Caribbean. So they were teased a lot. They were called Jamaican because they had an accent. And in the 90s, people did not differentiate between yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. different Caribbean islands. They had high water pants. They had thick mm-hmm. bifocal glasses. They mm-hmm. weren't cool. Mm-hmm. So it was a difficult transition for them. And then it was a parental transition because they were accustomed to being parented by my grandma. Mm-hmm. And now they're being parented by my parents. They knew that they had parents like a Mm. mom and a dad yeah my parents would call all the time and write letters and send barrels with gifts and Mm. stuff like that but it's just not the same like they had brand new parents in essence Mm -hmm. and barrels of gift you mean literal barrels yeah this is something you taught me last year and i was like what do you mean barrels but like they actually put stuff in barrels and then ship it to the islands yeah my my mom shipped my sister like a tricycle Mm. (laughs) because they don't have access to those things i mean even now like access to items like high-end items Mm. or 
um, you know, like popular toys. So they'll see the commercials yeah. for Barbies, but they don't have Barbies for sale. Right, right. And then like Amazon doesn't ship to St. Vincent and the Grenadines. So mm -hmm. yeah, so kids would want those things, but don't have access to them. So folks in the U.S. will ship barrels worth of goods, mm. food, like canned goods, um, yeah. clothing, gifts, things like that. To the Caribbean. Right. So you didn't experience that type of, um, I guess, like, outsideness because you didn't have an accent growing up. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, and, well, yeah and no. So this is interesting. Mm -hmm. In school, I wasn't considered an outsider mm -hmm. because everyone in school, especially in Crown Heights, and I went to school in, in Bed-Stuy, most of their parents were Caribbean. So I fit right in being an American-born person with Caribbean lineage, right? Right. Um, however, in my house, I was an outsider. Oh. And they would call me a Yankee, which is like a slang term for Americans right. or like um, people born in the Northeast. Yeah. So I was like, my mom would say things like she would make traditional Caribbean food and say, oh, Allison doesn't want to eat that. Oh. Like, you know, like they would say things that wasn't very nice. And I told them this. So this is not a surprise when they hear this. <laughs> I, I wrote an essay about it in college. Like, mm. so, yeah. So I was an outsider inside my home. And, and, and I remember it distinctly and it's not nice, mm. you know. So. Well, so what was that experience like? Um, I felt like an outsider. Mm. <laughs> it, I didn't, I don't, they did not treat me well. Mm. In, in the sense of like the jokes and stuff. Like the yeah, jokes bothered me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that something that was um, like resolved and healed like er, like later in your life? Or no, it just stopped. It just stopped. Yeah. At what, at what point? I don't know. I guess when everyone was Americanized. Mm. So it didn't matter anymore. Right. Like, my mm. sisters learned to drop their accents immediately. Mm. They didn't have, I, I mean, they had a choice, but I felt they didn't have much of a choice because they got so much pressure in school for being different. Mm. Um, and then, like, my immediate block, which is St. Mark's, was still, like, a black American block. Mm. So even though we talk about Crown Heights as being, like, a Caribbean community... Like, there's a, a significant Caribbean community on one side, and then there's, like, a Jewish community on the other side. It's still, it's still, like, my block was still, like, a black American block, so they were outsiders, you mm -hmm. know? So, mm -hmm. they dropped their accent immediately. I don't even remember them having an accent. Really? Like, they learned fast mm -hmm. that this wasn't cool. So, even though they dropped their accent, did the teasing still continue on? Well, yeah, because we got teased for wearing fake brands. and mm. <laughs> Well, I didn't get that too bad, even though I was wearing the same bootleg clothes that they were <laughs> they were wearing and high waters and yeah. sneakers from Payless and stuff like that. But I didn't get it that bad because I went to a school in Bed-Stuy eventually, and it was a gifted and talented school. And so the focus wasn't as much on fashion mm -hmm. and being cool as it was, is are you the smartest kid mm -hmm. in the class? Uh, so since I ended up going to this magnet school, mm -hmm. I didn't get the same kind of level of teasing mm -hmm. just because it just wasn't the focus in a gifted and talented school. Mm -hmm. What about like in the home once like everyone was kind of like, not, or your sisters were trying to adapt to American culture, did that change? What do you mean? Like the teasing that they did to you particularly? Yeah, I think we just grew out of it. Mm -hmm. That's all. Mm -hmm. I think it just got old. Like it's an old corny joke that, yeah. that I'm not... I'm not excited about like right. it's, it's not nice to be the only one, mm -hmm. the different one. So. Right, right. And then they just got over it. Yeah. Um, did um, like so growing up, like you know, obviously, like now you're 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 living between two cultures, um, and then like trying to fit in. I'm sure at home as well as you're trying to fit in at school, right? Like, how did people describe you as like a kid? Well, I don't know if I tried to fit in at home. Mm. Um, I was just me. 
Mm. And I ate what they ate, mm. and I listened to what they listened to because I didn't have a choice because I'm a kid, right? So you just go along with it. So I don't think I made an effort to fit in. I just was, mm. I was annoyed every time they would say something slick to me. Mm. But um, fitting in in school, I think just like anybody else, I just whatever everyone else is doing to be cool, to um, you know, listen to the same music and to yeah. know about what's going on in the sports world when the right. boys are at, you know in the cafeteria talking about what whatever basketball playoffs are going on and. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't have like access to cable and I didn't have access to movies. My my mom was very careful about making sure that we didn't watch some of those R rated things. So I was left out of those conversations. Like when people when the kids would be talking about the new movie they went to go see this weekend, I did not see it because I could not see PG thirteen films. Mm-hmm. But other than that, um, I think I just went through the normal trying to assimilate and trying to be down and trying to be cool like everybody else does in school. Mm-hmm. But like what was your personality like? Was it like how you are now or like how would people describe you as a kid? Or in your um, in your youth, I would say more so. I don't know. I don't know what they would say. That's a good question. I I'd like to say that I was prop. I was probably popular. I guess people would say, "Oh yeah, Allison was popular." Mm. Um, I was smart. I am still smart. <laughs> they would say Allison was smart, mm. and um, I, I was on the cheerleading team in in mm. high school and in college. Mm-hmm. And so I was relatively athletic. I mean, I don't know how much kudos cheerleading gets in terms of athleticism, but I was—I guess they would say that you know she was a part of athletics. Mm-hmm. In in high school, I was a part of a lot of organizations. I, I was the president for a little bit. Mm. There was some controversy around my presidency in high Why? school. So in essence, I um, my high school was in the hood, right? Like on uh, Fulton Street, Boys mm-hmm. and Girls High School. Mm-hmm. And outrageously low graduation rate. There are no, I shouldn't say no, because I was a high performer, but very little high performers. And so um, when when you had a student who was relatively polished and intelligent and stuff like that, you know, the, the, the admin t- took a notice. And so they recommended me for a scholarship mm-hmm. program. And the scholarship program was extremely... Uh, competitive and so how it worked is that there were students who were recommended across the city we had to go out to Manhattan to some office space Mm. and then we had to like they put us in groups and we had challenges every week and they would walk around with their notepad and write down who they thought took a leadership role I assume Mm -hmm. as an adult I assume that's what they were doing as Mm -hmm. writing on their pad and then they would write down who they thought was like I guess like just well spoken and seemed to take the lead and Mm -hmm. seemed to get things done Mm -hmm. and I made it through every week when you would come back, mm-hmm. half of the group would be gone. Mm. Like you would be invited back. I don't know how many me- weeks it was, maybe four weeks. Mm-hmm. And I made it to the end, so they offered me the scholarship. Mm-hmm. And there were some documents that needed to be filled out. And I, I filled out the documents, and one part had the, the uh, guidance counselor had to write, um, like write my GPA and sign her name. Mm-hmm. And because I was on the cheerleading team, and I was the captain of the handball team, and I was on the debate team, I, and I worked. I didn't have time, I didn't make the time to go down to the guidance office to have her sign and write my GPA. So I wrote it in and I signed her name. I wrote my real GPA and I signed her name. I was 17, I didn't know that that was a big deal. Mm. I'm thinking, I signed permission slips for my mom since third grade, like what's the big deal? Mm -hmm. Once I actually got permission, Mm 
and I'm not writing a GPA that's higher than what it actually was. I think my GPA was like 87. Mm -hmm. I wrote 87 mm -hmm. and I signed her name and I submitted the documents and then they called the office to inquire about something else. Mm -hmm. And then they said something about the documents and she said like, what documents? Which as an adult, she should have been sharper than that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I am a guidance counselor mm -hmm. and I would be way sharper than that. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, in, in regards to the documents you submitted, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. Oh, I'll, I'll look into that and give you a right. call. And then I would have found the student and said, what the hell did you do? Yeah. <laughs> but she should have been sharper than that. Mm -hmm. Whatever. So anyway, she said, what documents? Mm -hmm. And these are the documents that have your signature on yeah. it. Like, I didn't sign anything. And so they ended up rescinding the offer. And I, I guess I brought shame to my high school. And so they took my uh, presidency away. Wow. And they just bumped everyone else. So like the vice president became the president and mm. blah, blah, blah. Uh, they they did not tell anyone, so like the students didn't know, mm -hmm. but they could tell because like when it was time for us to take our photo for the yearbook, and they're like, "Where's the president?" And everyone's bad quiet, and then they're like, "Okay, now it's time for us to plan this event. Where's the president?" So they didn't tell the students or the student body, but I knew, and the admin knew, and the teachers knew. Right. And then um, vindictively, I would say, and I'm saying this as a person who works for schools. It was vindictive. Mm -hmm. um, the assistant principal at the time also went to the cheerleading coach and, and asked the cheerleading coach to remove me as captain and I think kick me off the team altogether. Mm. And luckily for me, the coach was like, no, she's been punished enough mm -hmm. and I will not remove her from the program. So I was lucky that I had an amazing coach, Miss White, from Boys and Girls High School. Ooh, who, out. <laughs> yeah, who um, did not dismiss me. And I'm mm. very thankful. And I'll say again, as someone who works in schools, mm -hmm. who is a current guidance counselor, I can tell you as an adult reflecting, that was not very nice. Mm. I'm not going to say your name. <laughs> but, I mean, that must have also been kind of like a weird experience because that you signing that form was not like you trying to, you know, work around or like fake anything. You're just like, oh, I'm just, here's just one more thing I just need a signing. And then all this unraveled yeah. after that. Yeah, but... um. Yeah, everything happens for a reason, so I don't know what would have happened if I went away to college. So this, it was a full scholarship, full-ride mm -hmm. scholarship, room and board and tuition. And at the time, the program allowed for you to choose like one of 25 colleges like of your choice that they wow. would pay for the whole thing. And the closest school was Trinity, I think mm -hmm. it's in Connecticut, and mm -hmm. so that's the school I chose because it was the closest to home. Now, the thing is, is that I think that that program put my mom in a tough spot because how is she going to deny me the opportunity to go away to college when I'm going to a prestigious school on a full ride? Right. So I think she was actually happy because she got a letter that said that the offer was rescinded. Mm -hmm. She knew I was going through the process, obviously, and she got an offer that said, a letter that said that the offer was rescinded and why? Because of fraud or whatever. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't even mad. And this is mm -hmm. like a traditional Caribbean woman. She should have right. beat me. Yeah. You know? So <laughs> if she wasn't mad, right, then that right. means she's like, yes, mm -hmm. I get the opportunity to keep my daughter home because I didn't want her to go away anyway. So how did you feel in the moment, though, for to lose such a big... Did you feel like it was a big opportunity lost in that time, in that moment? No, I didn't really care. I mm. I was upset about the school's reaction. Mm. And they they also continued, I believe, to um, to mistreat me as a result. Like, they, they were slow in processing my CUNY apps because that was back then, uh, CUNY application for those who outside of New York City. The City University of New York, those are um, the colleges that are public schools here in New York City. Mm -hmm. And they were like slow to process it. And that was before it was computerized. So mm -hmm. it was on paper and I had to fill it out and then give it to the counselor. And mm -hmm. the counselor had to process it. And she was slow to process. Like she didn't want to, every time I tried to meet with her to go over the choices, she didn't want to meet with me. So hmm. yeah, that, you know, you know, what's so funny is that I really haven't thought about this. You're a really good host because I really haven't thought about these things in a long time. I do tell 
my students the story in regards to the scholarship laws, mm. but um, just like how petty adults can be in a school setting, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, but I forgot the question. <laughs> what was the question? I don't know either, but this was great. <laughs> uh, yeah, but nonetheless. Oh, yes, was I upset about losing the opportunity? Yes, yeah. So, no, I wasn't that upset. I wasn't that gun ho I went because they told me to go. They said, mm. hey, we, we recommended you to go for this program, go. And I said, okay, because they told me to, and I went. I asked mm-hmm. my mom, and she said yes, and I went. Mm-hmm. And then they invited me the next week, so I was obligated to go the next week. And I just mm-hmm. I just rolled with it because that's what the school told me to do. Right, right. And that's what I was accustomed to doing. That's why they liked me so much initially because whatever they – the yeah, yeah. I followed the rule. I'm the good kid who followed yeah. the rule and sat in my seat. And when there was a sub – And then committed I fraud. Yeah, and then I committed fraud. <laughs> Come on. Like if I would have lied about my GPA, yeah. I think that that would have been deserving – of the mistreatment, but right, no, right. They, but it's like you could tell it was like an innocent mistake, kind of a situation. I, that's how I feel. Yeah. Now, on the other side, I guess I I don't know. Even though, like I said, I'm an adult now, so I'm reflecting and trying. Well, I wasn't trying to be more understanding. I'm gonna try mm-hmm. to be more understanding in this moment. Mm-hmm. Maybe from their perspective, like I was gonna be the jewel that represented what boys and girls could be. Yeah. Right. Like maybe they were gonna use this to like. Um, I don't know, do an article and try mm-hmm. to improve the stature of the school because even now it's it's like the graduation rate sucks. Mm-hmm. Now, again, working in schools, I because of my experience at Boys and Girls, besides this part, which was like the last six months of my senior year, I had a great experience there. Mm-hmm. And so I don't regard graduation rate as the only measurement of the, a quality school. Mm-hmm. I would say overall it was still a quality school, at least my experience was. And I made lifelong friends that I literally still talk to up until today yeah um but nonetheless yeah maybe they this was going to be like their saving grace and i ruined it maybe mm. there was just more to the picture that i didn't see mm. so i'll give them that little piece but i was still a kid so yeah i'm, I'm a kid <laughs> right yeah totally so so now you're going to brooklyn college and obviously well not obviously but that's where we met if mm-hmm. for those <laughs> those, those, those of you who don't know that but um, when you now made the decision to go to college and like what you wanted to study, like what in- influenced you or inspired you to study what you studied and what did you study in college? Okay. <laughs> this is so funny because you asked me about what I want to study in college and how did I decide it? And I'm going to start with third grade. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So in third grade, initially I wanted to be a pastry chef. Really? And the reason I wanted to be a pastry chef is because we, like I think I mentioned before, we didn't have cable to keep the bills down. So we didn't have cable. So um, we had limited access to television channels. And so I used to watch a lot of Channel 13. Mm -hmm. And for those who aren't aware about Channel 13, it's like the public access channel that has like really like enrichment educational (laughs) stuff, right? And there was a program on the show, on the channel called Yan Can Cook. And it was an Asian oh, guy who would, who would yeah. you know, Yen Ken Cook? You remember that? <laughs> Shout out to anybody on the podcast that knows Yen Ken Cook from the 90s. And so I used to watch him yeah. and I really got a joy for cooking. Mm. And he was a real, not only, I mean, I don't, I never had the food, obviously, mm. but it seemed like he was a really good cook. And, but he was a really good personality. Yeah. Like he did, you know, he was a good talent. But um, because I was a kid, I liked sugar. Mm. So I didn't want to just cook regular food. I wanted to be a pastry chef. Uh. So that was like third grade to eighth grade. And then that. in eighth grade, I became the editor in chief of my yearbook. Mm. And so I wanted to get into journalism. Mm. 
And then when I was um, in ninth, 10th, 11th grade, I started to come into my good looks. And then I decided that I wanted to be a broadcast journalist because I said, I need to share this beauty with the world. Mm-hmm. So not only do I want to do regular journalism, yeah. I want to be broad. I want you to see. Yeah. You need to see all of this. And then probably in like 11th grade-ish, well, it started in eighth grade a little bit, mm. um, that I used to help students in the classroom. Mm. And like I would understand the work and then I would be able to explain the work in a way that they understood. Like mm. I would just speak in a way that, obviously because we're kids together in yeah. this, right? So I'm like, all right, boom. Mm-hmm. So you got $5, right? <laughs> but you want to buy two heroes because your friend said he wanted a ham, but yeah. you want the turkey, right? Like just say it in like right, stupid kid-like right. language, right? All right, so you, these Jordans are coming out. Yeah. These Jordans are about to drop on Saturday, yeah. right? But cool, you only got $90. Uh-huh. So, but you got to pay the tax on yeah. that. So they understood. So that started in like eighth grade a little bit, but I still, again, wanted to do journalism. Mm -hmm. And then when I got into high school, and again, my school not being the highest performing school of all time, and me being considered one of the brightest, which I, I mean, I was academically, and I'm sure that there are other people who came from that school that blossom maybe and are more successful than I am. But in that moment, I was like the best of the brightest, right? Mm. Um, they call us the pride and joy of Bed-Stuy. So in those moments when I was in class and I would be helping kids, I'm like, I'm really good at this helping kids thing. Mm. So then that's when I decided that I wanted to be a teacher. Really? When I was in high school. So the good thing is, is that I was able to get right into college at Brooklyn College. Mm. I know exactly what I wanted. You can't declare your major as a freshman, mm. but I knew exactly what I wanted to do from the beginning of college. Mm-hmm. And you enjoyed doing that too. Yeah, I, I liked it. I liked explaining things to kids in a way that they understood. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, when you're like a, a, a peer tutor, that's not the same thing as being a teacher leading an entire class. Mm-hmm. But in the moment, I knew I really like working with children. And then the other side of that, so I knew that I liked teaching mm-hmm. in that sense, or tutoring was probably more than I, what I was doing. I never led a class. But this is the other side of it. So the other side is that my oldest, my oldest sister, Astra, she went to Hunter College. She's six years my senior. Mm-hmm. And she would sometimes, when capable, would take my middle sister and I to classes with her. Mm. And um, she studied like urban development. I don't know, some, one of those. I don't even know what it was. She got a master's degree in there. Yeah. And um, so she would take a lot of like Africana studies and and black history classes, like wherever she could fill her elective, she would Mm -hmm. fill it with that. Now, uh, something I need to ask her is what sparked her interest Mm -hmm. in black studies. But um, as a result of her interest, she then sparked that interest in me and my uh, my other sister. My sister, my, my oldest sister would take us to places that we really should not have been. Like, I remember she took us to like some kind of. I don't need, I don't want to call it a black power. I'm gonna call it black power for the for, for the entertainment of this podcast. A black power event okay. at like age 13 in the basement of a church in Harlem. Mm. I had no business. I really don't know. It was probably like a, just a community organization, sure. but for drama, yeah, for the a drama. black power event um, at like 15 mm. in the, in a in a church basement in Harlem, and um, she took us to the museum and she took us to the library my, my mom was sending us to the library every weekend mm. but she would help us choose which books we would get and we would get vhs tapes and we watched i remember we watched a tape as a family of um marcus garvey's so i learned about marcus garvey mm-hmm. and the back to africa movement um which influenced malcolm x we would listen to uh malcolm x speeches mm. and that's when i fell in love with malcolm x and his mm. delivery and and his message mm. and so Combining those two things. So I already have a joy of working with children. Mm. And then um, just all of the history that I learned about being black 
in the diaspora being black in America and then thinking to myself, how can I help black people? So obviously I'm black, y'all. <laughs> uh, let me make that clear. Um, you probably, even though this is probably really racist to say, you could probably tell by my voice. At minimum, you know I'm a New Yorker and I'm yeah, a Brooklynite. New Yorker, yeah. At max, you probably already know I was black. But I'm thinking, like, I want to help kids. And then, like, I'm learning about the struggles of, of black people and blackness mm. around the world. So, like, how can I best help black people? Mm. So I'm like, okay, well, if I became a teacher then I would be able to help to mold the minds of the youth mm. before they get into any kind of trouble, yeah. right? And I would hope that that influence would then steer them on the right track so that they would be empowered and then they could mm. help uplift the rest of the community, right? Mm. Then I'm like, all right, well, what subject? Because I was really good in science. Mm. I got like a 98 on my Earth Science Regents. <laughs> <laughs> regents are state exams earth for those, science. For oh those outside God. of New York State. Um, regents are, are state exams. So yeah. I got like a 98 on my Earth Science Regents. But that's because my eighth grade science teacher was insane, Mr. Bartomarco. Mm. Insane. He's still alive. Shout out to Mr. Bartomarco. He's in Florida. He was like really, oh, not even borderline abusive. He was abusive, but I didn't care. Mm. I loved him because he loved me because I did my work. <laughs> Anywho, so I'm like, I'm really good in science mm -hmm. and I'm really good in history. Mm. I'm not really strong in math. Mm. So, and I mean, English is okay. Like I can read and comprehend. So I'm like, what could, what should I teach mm. that would be the best of all worlds, right? So I'm like, if I teach history mm. and if I'm able to like, um, put an emphasis on black history mm -hmm. and, and not just freaking slavery right. all the time yeah. and talk about like the beauty of the black culture and where we came from, mm -hmm. then I would hope that that could spark in some, we only need like one more, like one more Malcolm X, right? Like if I could spark in someone's mind, like being black is beautiful. I want to empower my community because of the lessons coming from Miss Williams. Mm -hmm. So as a result, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to start this organization or I'm going to become a lawyer and mm -hmm. I'm, or I'm going to become a judge so that mm -hmm. I can impact policies and, or a politician or whatever. So I'm like, all right, that's the best of both worlds. Teach history mm. to black kids. Mm. Wow. So that's, that's the that, journey. Is that the same? Do you still have that, um, like carry that same mission with you today? So... No. <laughs> so that's what it was uh, through like the end of high school and college. Mm. And then a couple of things. So initially, once I graduated college, this was in 2008. And there was, um, you guys know about the economy back in 2008 in the U.S. And so uh, there was a freeze on social studies teachers in New York City at the time. Oh, really? And so I could not get a job in the Department of Education at the time. I had a friend who worked at a psychiatric, a children's psychiatric hospital. And so at a children's psychiatric hospital, they still have a wing for school mm. because they want to bring some normalcy back into the children's lives and mm. have a regimen and have something for them to do. Because mm. what the heck are you going to do all day, right? right. Um, so they had a school on the, they like to call it campus, mm. <laughs> whatever, right? Mm -hmm. That is school on the, on the hospital grounds yeah. mm -hmm. on the campus. And um, so my friend got me an interview there, and I began teaching there at the Ooh. psychiatric hospital. Now, um, the reason why someone would be hospitalized in a mental facility mm. is if they are deemed a harm to self or others. Mm. And so if you are in a, in a mental or someone, not you, mm -hmm. um, and they may have access to podcasts, if anyone yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is in a mental health facility, it is not a light-hearted decision that a parent would make or a loved one would make, right? To oh, commit you. Right. So, nonetheless, uh, these these students and these these children are in are in desperate need of help, 
And so as I was teaching them, whatever lesson I had for the day, I could watch them like not be able to process what I was teaching. Like I can see it, like they were not there with me. I don't know if it were the if it was the drugs. Mm. I don't know if it was um, them processing whatever is going on in their mind, having memories of whatever trauma they might have been through. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it was like there was one student who, I don't know, she was like, I think she was actively hearing voices, mm. you know. And so I came to the realization that they could not learn mm. in this way as they are right now. Yeah. They're not in the position to learn right now. And what really struck me is there was a particular patient who, um, what they would do is that they would give you a a give a, a, a patient a weekend pass, right? Yeah. So if you had like six months of of no instances and you really showed progress, mm. and you had a parent at home who was willing to take you because a lot of these patients don't necessarily have oh. s- uh, stable parenting, mm. then they would give the biggest award of all time, like mm. the biggest piece of cake you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, would be this weekend pass, and I got a weekend pass, and mm. you ain't got a weekend pass because mm. nobody loves you to pick you up, like right, like it's uh-huh. the weekend pass because you are. It's like freedom, right? Yeah. So that's like the biggest deal in the hospital to earn this weekend pass. And this student or this patient had a weekend pass that was coming up, and someone annoyed her, or pissed her off, or whatever in the class. And I watched her like absolutely fall apart. Mm. Like I looked at her in her eyes, and she was just not present. Flipping chairs, like this is normal, like flipping chairs, throwing mm. books, like just absolutely falling apart. And so everyone around her is saying, stop, stop, you have a weekend pass. If you continue this behavior, you're going to lose the weekend pass. Yeah. And again, that's the biggest deal of all time. Right. So I don't care. And just like she, whatever it was that, that triggered her. And her eyes were shifty. Oh. Like she had absolutely no focus. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, damn, like these students, these patients are not in a position to learn. Like, this was like the shorter brought the camel's back. Like, if she cannot, if she cannot make the choice to stop what she's doing, she physically is unable to stop yeah. so that she can keep this pass. Yeah. Then this is beyond any level of education. Mm. So that's why I decided to get into mental health. Mm. And so what I said to myself... Well, wait, what about that... Like, that seems like there's a leap. Like, what about this person being in that state made you want to go into mental health? So, like I said, if if she's not in a position to learn, like, mm-hmm. I'm here to teach you, and you don't even have the ability to stop your physical movements of flipping chairs because you know that you're about to lose something big. You can't even do that. How can you learn? So your your goal was, like, you need to understand mental health so to better be able to teach them? No. So my my thought was... That there are probably lots of great teachers out there, but I don't know how many like great mental health professionals there are. There are because I had a lot of great teachers, but Mm. I never had any mental health issues. I don't know, like I don't know what's going on in the mental health space. Mm. So I need to get into mental health because then I would be able to resolve the mental health, help resolve the mental health issues, so those students are even in a position to Mm. learn. Wow. Because if you're not even in a position to learn, it doesn't matter. My black history lesson can be amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and the average student would feel so empowered about where they come from so they know where they're going. Yeah. But if you can't even hear the words coming mm-hmm. out of my mouth, mm-hmm. you can't process the, the amazing lesson that I have that would have empowered you to change the sure. world, then I, that's a waste of time. And I'm sure there's lots of teachers across the country 
who have this mission of empowering children. Mm -hmm. But if those children are not in a position to listen, then that's of no benefit. So I thought that maybe I would be better suited to work in the mental health space Mm -hmm. to help resolve those mental health issues so that they're starting at zero so that they can even be in a position to learn. Sure. That was my logic. Wow. You know, I, because, you know, this is, this is what I love about the podcast is like, you get to do more of a deeper dive. Like, even though I've known you for now, like maybe what? 12 years Mm -hmm. I guess it's been maybe more than that like I didn't know this uh like your journey but I'm also realizing that there is such um like every like the decisions about wanting to become a teacher wanting to get into mental health is it's about like service to the community or service to someone else like where do you think that oh (laughs) well I mean that's what kind of what it sparks you in your story about being a teacher and like mental health it's like to help other people and then helping the black community as well like where do you think that stem from or like that posture that you have like a lot of these decisions are made from that posture it Mm -hmm. seems like of helping people? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't have an answer. Okay. I, I like to think I always have the answer. But I don't have the answer. I don't know. I just, mm. you know, I told the story. Like, I, this, I wanted to teach because I was good at it. Yeah. And then I wanted to help black people because I learned how much of a, a difficult position that we're in in mm. this society and in this world. And then when I started to teach, I'm like, well, I mean, I think I, I was 21 at the time. I probably, probably was being a little dramatic of saying, let me enter the mental health space because this is a like my population was a very small population. Most students do not have mental health issues. But at the time I'm like, oh no, I, I think I'm better yeah, mm-hmm. I'm better suited in, in this position. But um I guess I'm getting more selfish now. Mm-hmm. If you want to call it selfishness, no judgment to the entrepreneurs out there. <laughs> I'm becoming a little bit more concerned about money mm-hmm. now than I was before. I think once I got into education and then I saw the paycheck mm. and then I'm like, how am I supposed to live in New York City on this? And I know, I, you know, you always say, oh, teachers don't make any money. But when you are 18 and you really don't make any money, $50,000 sounds like a lot of money to you mm-hmm. until you have a car and you have student loans and you have an apartment. And then yeah. you realize that uh, $50,000 is a joke, mm-hmm. especially when the expectation for teachers is that we have a master's degree. Mm. So if you are if you are requiring that a group have a certain level of education mm-hmm. and you're not paying them accordingly or in comparison to their counterparts, that's where the real injustice is, I think. Mm-hmm. Not to say that teachers shouldn't have a master's degree. You should master mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. whatever your content is. But if you're going to require that level of education, but then the salary is not commensurate to everyone else mm-hmm. who is required to have master's degrees or that level of education, I think that's, what it, that's, that's where the injustice is. Yeah, that's literally like... Just yesterday, Chrissy and I talked exactly about that. Like they were, they have all, you are required to go through all of this education to become a teacher, and then a there's like so many unqualified teachers still, and then b it's like underpaid. You have to pay all these student loans. That like, what's the point? Right. So that's why I'm hoping with um, our new president that uh, there's some student loan forgiveness. Hopefully, there's some bias with his wife being an educator. Yeah. And uh, normally, I'm extremely aggressive. Well, I'm not extremely aggressive when it comes to paying back debt. Mm. You are extremely <laughs> aggressive. And uh, the other the other followers of the cult. Um, but 
It's a great cult. Uh, it, it is a great one to join. But um, usually I'm, I'm on paying off my debt. And of course, I pay my student loans on time when I'm supposed to. But um, my hope is, is that I don't have to worry about that in, mm. in a few years. So, so okay, I want to I wanna get back to, you know, you entering the mental health field and then kind of leading up to where you are now. So so you decided to make that pivot. You to, you went back to school to yes. like get like a master's degree mm-hmm. in, in mental health. Yes. What's the degree in? So... As a teacher, when mm-hmm. you have a bachelor's degree in education, you're required to get a master's degree mm. within five years. Any master's? So my understanding is any, but I cannot believe that they have that much of a of a loophole. Mm. Like you're telling me I can get a master's degree in business management and finance, like I, I mm. or I, it's an MBA. Like I don't. Right. Uh, um, but based on my reading of the of the website of the New York State Education Department website, it said a master's. At least that was like ten years ago, or. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Damn. Ten mm. years ago. <laughs> Ten years ago. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, it said a master's degree. So, I said, okay, well, I'm going to try my luck. And mm. I'm going to do a master's degree in guidance and counseling. Mm. Even though it's not a master's degree in history, which is what most history teachers do. do. Or mm. math or science, whatever your sure. content specialty is. So, I did my master's degree in guidance and counseling, hoping that it would count and it still allow me to teach. Because at this time, I'm still teaching. And I'm like, and I, and I was confident because the program was a two-year program. My five years would have been up. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I really hope that this constitutes as a master's mm-hmm. to them so that I would be allowed to still teach while I looked for a guidance position. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. So now you did guidance and counseling, but you were doing that in schools or were you doing that in like a mental health and like environment? So I was at the psychiatric hospital for a year and then they still, the city was still not hiring teachers, or at least history teachers at the time. But I found a position at a state school. Mm. There are very few state schools. Um, and I was in the Bronx. And so it was a couple thousand dollars more, maybe like $6,000. So I left the psychiatric hospital and I went to the state school. But the thing about the state school that's special, the reason why there aren't a lot of them is because they, it's a weird niche. So mm-hmm. it's like, it's a school for students who are not a harm to self or others, Mm -hmm. but are not in a space emotionally to function in a special education, not even a special education classroom. I see. So it's like, in essence, when when a kid gets out of the psychiatric hospital, that's where they go before they enter back into special education, before they possibly go to general education. Mm. So they they hired me immediately. They said, oh, you worked at the psych hospital? Mm. You're a perfect fit. Mm. So I transitioned there first, I was teaching there still, teaching history, and then I started my master's degree in guidance and counseling while I was there. Mm. Um, And from there, I moved into the Department of Education because they started hiring history teachers. So I was still teaching and going to school, and it took me three years to find a guidance position. They're very hard to find in the Department of Education. Mm. Yeah. So you know when you're working with people like that, like it seems like limbo, like before you get like committed and before you're like able to go into even special ed, like... Um, <clears throat> I'm curious to know, like, what is, I mean, I'm sure you learned a lot just being around people with, I guess, this type of disability. Um, like, what's the, what's the posture you have, like, the way you view these people, or, like, what's maybe a misconception that maybe the general population has about people like that? That's a good question. I'm not sure if it's a misconception. I don't think that most people think about mental health unless they have someone in their mm. family who's going through it or they are themselves. Yeah. So I don't even think, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't even think that 
there are lots of conceptions or misconceptions mm. because I don't think it's something that we really think about too, too much. But of course, there's fleeting thoughts, sure. right? Even if it's not something that directly impacts you. What I would like to share, whether or not it's a misconception, I don't know, is that a lot of, a lot of students or children who become patients um, are usually patients due to trauma. Mm. I, I find that, and even though I am in the mental health space, I am not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not even a therapist. Mm-hmm. But I find that, in my opinion, based on the patients I came across, the children I came across, a, a lot of their issues could have been avoided if they had sound parenting. Mm-hmm. If they had appropriate supervision. Mm-hmm. if um, Or if their parents were cared for by their own parents. Yeah. But I find that a lot of it comes from the home. Yeah. It's the environment. It's not even necessarily that they're born. Of course, we know that um, people are born with mental illness sure. too or yeah. propensity towards mental illness. Right. Um, I know they talk about like being bipolar. There's some... Um, like a gene. Yes, there's a gene that's related to it possibly that mm-hmm. may cause it. And then a lot of times you don't even see it develop or manifest until folks are in like their college years. Usually the pressures of college is what allows it to manifest. So I'm not saying that it's something that's not related to biology in any aspect, but what I found based on my limited experience of working in psychiatric hospital mm-hmm. for a year is that it has a lot to do with poor parenting and possibly those parents being parented poorly by their own parents. Right, right. It's like a vicious cycle. Yep. You know, I, I recorded another episode with um, someone I went... I used to work at a church, you know, that in L.A. And um, in this church I worked in, there was spiritual and emotional abuse from the the senior pastor. And um, one thing we talked about was, like... It's, it's like a weird tension or struggle you have internally because while you're hurt by the fact that this person was hurtful, like you understand that he too went through trauma as a kid, or at least you can assume at the very least that he did, which I'm sure also because his parents were a certain way to him and maybe his someone treated his parents. Certain, like it's just mm. like this like hurt, like... Like hurt people hurt people? Yeah, and it's like, like it... It, I was telling him, I was like, it just feels very, like, overwhelming of, like, what do you, or how do you have hope? Because it just seems like it's a cir- it's a cycle, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you, Is there, like, a hope? How do you have, like, maybe a hopeful perspective if you do? Or is it just kind of, like, accepting this is the way things are? I, I really haven't given it much thought. Mm. I, uh, my, my hopeful perspective is probably not... Uh, it's not hopeful in the sense that I expect to change anyone. Like, I don't, I approach it where I tell my students that they have a problem with their parent, which again, it's not a mental health issue. This is just when you have problems with parents. I tell them that your parent will not change. That's what I tell them. Mm. As your parent will not change, you cannot change your parent. They are who they are, especially if they are of any kind of like immigrant descent. Mm-hmm. They are stoked in their traditional old country ways. They are not changing. They may, but I'm gonna t- I tell my students that they're not gonna change. You have to change you. Mm. You have to be strategic as to how you are going to live and love your parents as who they are. And then, and then what you're going to do is circumnavigate around that to live mm. your life later. Mm. But you live in their house. You're following their rules. You're going to remain to be respectful. Set yourself up to where you can leave their home mm. 
mm. as quickly as possible and be mm-hmm. financially stable so that if you find that they are abusive or unaccepting of your lifestyle or whatever it may be, mm-hmm. which is what I find a lot um, in my counseling sessions in school at mm-hmm. work, um, if they're unaccepting of your lifestyle, which is mm-hmm. a big issue, right? Um, then what you're going to do is you are going to pass your classes. You're mm-hmm. going to pass your exams. You're going to get the highest GPA possible. Yeah. I'm going to help you apply for colleges. We're going to apply for scholarships. We're going to make sure that your FAFSA is in and it's solid mm-hmm. so that you can go away. Yeah. Right. And then you can live the life that you want to mm-hmm. live. Mm-hmm. But you are trying to convince your parent who is in their forties and fifties and come from a traditional mindset of this is the life that you want to lead. You're wasting your time. Mm-hmm. Don't even bother. <laughs> Love them for who they are, mm-hmm. and perhaps you need to love them from afar. Mm-hmm. Now, that uh, there might be people in here that's going to say, oh, my God, that's terrible advice. I hope my guidance counselor is, my <laughs> kid's guidance counselor is not telling them that. But I, I think that it makes more sense to invest in you yeah. than it is to try to invest in changing someone else. Yeah. And hopefully 100%. they come around, right? Yeah. And hopefully, maybe one day for Thanksgiving, you can in- invite your mate over that they wouldn't have necessarily accepted. Right. And maybe they may come to your wedding if you choose to have one. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I agree. I'm not, I, I am not a proponent of trying to change other people. I'm a proponent of trying to change yourself. Mm. Okay, this is a good segue into, like, you know, your the new service that you, a new business that you just launched, which is relationship and dating uh, coaching. How? Where did that start? So, I would say that, I think probably with my dad. So, this is so funny. You ask a question and it's, it's, everything goes back to childhood, right? <laughs> Um, which is reminiscent of a pod, of your first podcast, yeah, with your guest. Mm-hmm. So you're so good. <laughs> <laughs> you might have edited this out. You're really good, or add it, or keep it so that they know that you're good. Um, my dad always told me that I should be a politician. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I always have a lot to say, and I speak loudly. I, it's unnatural. I think I'm making an effort to keep the volume down now. Oh, my, really? My mom would, and I'm probably really loud right now. Mm-hmm. My mom would have to shush me on the bus all the time when I'd be telling her stories. Mm-hmm. So she, my, I guess he's, my dad would say you need to be a politician because I was opinionated and loud. And um, over the years, with that opinionated thing, I would always tell my friends what they should do and what they shouldn't do, and most of them don't listen. I learned that with, within adulthood. Like, most people don't listen, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that being said, as I said earlier, I always think I have the answer. Mm. <laughs> and I, I really do always think that I have the answer. And I like to give people the answer. And mm-hmm. so when you have that posture, then when folks are actually looking for an answer, they'll come to you. Right. Because they remember that you always think you have the answer or you mm-hmm. come across so confidently like you do have the answer. So now I need mm-hmm. the answer. Mm-hmm. I Come, tell yeah. me what I should do. I need help. Right. What should I do with my career? What should I do with my man? What should I do with school? Whatever. So I would just give advice naturally and many times overstepping. I wasn't until like my mid-20s when I learned to stop overstepping because nobody asked me, so mind my business. Mm-hmm. But anywho, positioning myself in people's lives as the person who has the answer and the person who has the resolution, the person who can guide you, folks then began to come to me to look for that advice. And they knew not to come to me to vent because I am not the vent. I mm. am the resolution. Mm. So you're venting with the goal at the end to how are we going to come to our next steps. If you're venting for the sake of venting, I'm not the friend for you. And they all know that. And I mm-hmm. make that abundantly clear. Mm-hmm. So, which is okay to have friends for, for different things. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, I've always been in this air of offering advice mm. and telling people what to do and what they shouldn't do. And so... In being a guidance counselor, that's mm-hmm. the same thing, right? You're right. counseling, so that's mm-hmm. in the same family. And 
paired with a couple of things. So having a, a relationship of my own of four years that did not result or end in the way that I anticipated, hmm. uh, coupled with COVID and hearing people many times jokingly say like, oh, COVID's going to bring a lot of divorces. Mm. Folks aren't accustomed to being home together this long. You don't even know your husband really because half the time he's at work and the other half the time he's sleeping. Mm -hmm. Now you're really going to learn him intimately. Mm -hmm. The joke's about, oh, I didn't know that my if my wife was the all righty person on the Zoom mm -hmm. call, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're learning like your wife is kind of corny <laughs> at work because you never interacted with your wife right. that way or your partner mm -hmm. that way. You never see them at work. So even though I think I'm quite cool at work, I'd like for people to see. I, I just think I'm quite cool, period. I'm actually uh, extremely full of myself, which we can get into if we have time, as to why I'm purposely extremely full of myself. Oh, okay. Cool. So um, nonetheless, where were we? Uh, uh, why you got into yeah, coaching. Yeah, four-year relationship. Yeah, that mm -hmm. did not end well. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, not it didn't end well, but it didn't end the way that I thought. I didn't think it would end, right, or right. end with death or whatever, right? To death do you part yeah coupled with everyone talking about the difficulties of relationships during covid mm -hmm. coupled with the difficulty of dating during covid mm. and how the hell am i going to meet people if i'm home and i'm not a fan of dating apps right mm. so all of those things to get oh coupled with uh we were talking earlier about entrepreneurs mm. and now i'm in my 30s i'm concerned about money mm -hmm. like i really didn't think about money before but sure. now i have like real goals mm -hmm. uh, financial goals and not just about service yeah so all of those things made me come to the realization that i need to have another stream of income and mm -hmm. i need uh, to find what i'm good at in order to generate another stream of income which would right. be offering advice and then what is where's my area of expertise so if mm -hmm. i'm offering advice about something that it needs to be about something that I am intimately comfortable with and knowledgeable about and so that's how we got the entire picture of relationship coaching oh okay so where do you where did you get your um, experience and knowledge from about relationships so I would say that it's my own personal experiences plus coupled with my friends and hearing mm. their stories coupled with um, our elders, like our parents and grandparents, especially women. And I've been actually quite passionate about the quote unquote place of women in society and in relationships since college. Mm. And um, a lot of the inequities and the injustices that I see. And so this is just something that I've always been passionate about. Actually, you just reminded me mm. that in my early 20s, I was going to write a book. Whatever happened to that book? <laughs> it in my notes on my iPhone and I was doing interviews with people and a lot of people didn't want to be interviewed mm. whatever I bet you if I came back now yeah they'd be, like, they'd be interested yeah. but nonetheless mm -hmm. um, so I've always had my mind on women and our again quote-unquote place in relationships in this society and so that's what did where you I see? got it where the injustices are? Mm -hmm. Oh man, I don't have the time. Neither do you. <laughs> I mean, you is know. there is there a specific memory that like sticks out to you in particular, or like what's the image that comes to mind when you're like when I think the about injustice? Yeah. Oh man. Okay. So what really grinds my gears is that in society, I think that we're in a very strange place. Mm -hmm. We're in a place where women want that equality and many times are out earning our mates, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we're not making the same, we're perhaps maybe even the breadwinners. Mm -hmm. um, so financially, we have a stake in the household, mm -hmm. as we should, because yeah. we're happy to make this money and to be doing well for ourselves. 
But then there's also at the same damn time mm-hmm. this expectation from mm-hmm. some people, not my husband, he's amazing and he's mm-hmm. fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this expectation from some men in heterosexual relationships of this traditional role. Mm. So financially, the expectation is that we're splitting 50-50. Right. You're seeing a lot of memes and jokes in regards to, I'm not paying for a $200 date. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there, there's this un- another video that went around recently about a guy who was demanding that his date paid her portion. Like, it's a date, you asked mm-hmm. me out. Mm-hmm. So I, the outrage that I have is that there seems to be a lot of men who have an expe- expectation of traditional roles uh, um, in the household. Mm. But then when it comes to the finances, we're 50-50. Which right. one is it? Right. If we're going to be 50-50 financially, then we need to be 50-50 in the expectations of running this home and mm-hmm. caring for our children. It can't be that you expect me to behave like a housewife mm-hmm. and take care of all of the roles at home, cooking, cleaning, laundry, and child rearing. Yeah. But then I'm also expected to work just as many hours as you and mm-hmm. contribute to the household the same which one is it are we in the 50s Mm. or are we in 2020 Mm. you can't have it both ways Mm. that's unfair so whatever it is Mm -hmm. whatever we decide to do Mm -hmm. if it's going to be that i'm contributing equally to this household then you need to contribute equally to the to the workload right or we could take it back to the 50s I'm still going to work. I'm going to keep all my money. Mm -hmm. And then I can take care of all of the household. Then I can't be mad because I'm not paying anything. But you cannot have it both ways. And I think that's where the outrage for me is. Yeah. So I'm sure a lot of your clients or your friends as well, like, might find them in this exact situation. Like, how do you usually advise people or couples or women in particular, like, to how to navigate that circumstance? If, if. I have someone who's already in a relationship or married. Well, mm-hmm. let me start with in a relationship. If you are already in a relationship and you feel like you're being treated uh, unfairly and unequally, you need to communicate that. And if that's not communicated, then that's not the right mate for you. Mm. I actually have that same answer for someone who's married. However, people don't want to hear that because mm. then, oh, you're advocating divorce. If you have a legitimate complaint and this person is not treating you as an equal, then you need to find someone who will treat you as an equal. Mm. I'm not your maid, I'm not your mother. Mm. And I find that men, a lot of men are getting away with murder in regards to their responsibilities with child rearing and their responsibilities in the household. And it's simply not fair if I am, as a woman, contributing to this household mm. financially. It's just not fair. Mm. Find a mate that's appropriate. I did. <laughs> So, um, so let's talk a little bit about like, um, you know, finding your mate. Cause I think that's really where your coaching focuses on. Um, um, maybe can you share a little bit about like the process and the philosophy behind how you structured your business and your services? Sure. So my philosophy around finding the mate that you deserve comes from my own personal process, right? Mm. So I was able to construct this methodology around what I did in order to find my mate. So I'm like, well, if it worked for me, I'm sure it'll work for others. And Mm. I tested it and it did. So I'm like, all right, we're going to move forward. (laughs) Did my beta test. Mm. So the first step is knowing exactly what you want from your mate. You have to know the five non-negotiables is what I call it. Because how can you search for something if you don't know what it looks like, what it talks like, what Mm. it walks like, right? If I'm looking for a set of headphones, I don't know that they're white. I don't know that there are earbuds only. They don't have a cord. Mm. I don't know that it has a little case that they come in. And I don't know that they're Apple. How am I going to find them if I don't know what they look like, Mm. right? So we first have to know exactly what we want from our mates. And we have to go through a relatively mentally strenuous process of knowing that what we're looking for is what is most important too. Because Mm. we can write down five things and then you come back to that list a couple of years later because usually it takes some time 
and realize what you were looking for was petty and ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Or your dating process. So you'll have your list and then you begin to date people who are on that list and then you realize that there are other things that are more important that outweigh what was on the list originally. So you might have, mm -hmm. but you come to a conclusion as to what your five non-negotiables are, what you must have in a mate, usually based on your experiences and usually based on poor experiences of the past. Mm -hmm. You were lied to before. So now I have to have someone who's truthful. Mm -hmm. um, you were, I don't know, uh, abused before. So whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, or you saw it through someone else's lens. So that's step one. You have to make sure that you know exactly what you want to mate. What are acceptable non-negotiables and non-acceptable ones? Because I think, you know, there, you actually like a while back when I was kind of receiving questions for the podcast, someone asked a question like, you know, should you have a criteria list? And like, if so, or, or like if she's like, if you have a criteria list, like when should you just throw that out the window and just kind of never mm, what it is, what is a criteria list like? Because that's a broad spectrum. You can be like, I need someone who's tall, or like, I need someone who's this, or like, what should be on there? Or recommend, do you recommend? Yeah, you? so I, I was going to say that I would never tell anyone what should or should not be on their list, mm. for the most part. Okay. I would not tell anyone that because I'm not the one that has to live in that relationship. And then mm. you listen to me and it was really important that this person made the same amount of money as you. Mm. And then now six months later or a year later, you've moved in together. This person doesn't make it and you're financially struggling and you're cur curly, like cursing me out and calling mm. me because I told you to date somebody who's broke. So <laughs> I don't tell people what should or should okay. not be for the most part, unless what they're asking for, I think is like outrageous, like really outrageous. Mm -hmm. So... Um, it's hard for me to say what should or shouldn't be. What I would say is that you need to use your past experiences to guide you on creating your list. You okay. know exactly what went wrong in the past, mm -hmm. which is the next step. Mm -hmm. You need to analyze what went wrong in the past with your selection process, with why you chose that person so that you know how to choose the next person better. Mm -hmm. Just like a pair of shoes. You bought a pair of shoes and they hurt. Mm -hmm. So now when you buy your next pair of shoes, you're going to say, I'm going to get a wider size. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get a bigger size. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get suede versus leather. I'm not going to get the six inch. I'm going to get the four inch. Mm -hmm. So you have to test previously to know what's a better fit moving forward. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then once you've now created your criteria list, what comes after that? So criteria and then from there the reflection the self-reflection you have to come to the realization of what you did wrong in your previous relationship because similar to what we spoke about before you can't change other people you can change yourself mm. so you need to come to the realization of where you went wrong in your previous relationships and be honest about it i ask that question on my instagram all the time and even i think yesterday or two days ago mm -hmm. and the responses were still in some way shape or form blaming the other mm. so i asked the question of what you did wrong in your previous relationship and the vast majority of people had the same answer which is i chose the wrong mate mm. which there is some validity in that because there is an error in choosing the wrong mate sure. however you're still putting the onus on the fact that he or she was not a good person or the right person versus saying um, I valued money over blah, blah, blah. And that's why I chose the wrong mate. Sure. I was argumentative. Mm -hmm. I, uh, because of previous trauma, I was not trusting. Mm. Like, I hardly got responses of anyone who was critical of mm. their own character or their own behavior as if they were perfect angels. And they were not. Yeah. Do you think people do that because they don't spend enough time self-reflecting or do like... Or do you, I mean, like, why do you think people are quick to just, like, blame the other person? I think it's easier. Mm. It's, who, who wants to take accountability for why something falls apart? 
I don't want to take accountability for mm-hmm. why things fall apart. Like me, Allison, I'm crazy about not taking accountability when things fall apart. But the way that I combat that is trying my best to be as thorough as possible so things don't fall apart. Mm. I don't want to be the blame. I don't want to be the bad guy. I don't want to be the wrong guy. I don't want anyone to be mad at me. I don't want things to fail. So I'm going to do my best to be as clear as possible, plan, organize, so that if something falls apart, it's not Allison's fault because, look, I had a schedule. I had a plan. I called you. I sent a text. I sent an email. How how could you have not known this is not my fault? Mm -hmm. No one wants to be accountable for where they go wrong and where they make mistakes, Mm -hmm. but yet they're not doing the work necessary to try to avoid Mm -hmm. making those mistakes. That's not fair. What do you think people are afraid of to to be accountable and to take responsibility, to like face that? Because then they're bad or they're wrong. Mm. Who want, I, but everybody wants to be right. Everybody right. wants to win. Mm-hmm. You you know, being wrong is the negative. We all want to be, well, not positive and everything. We don't want to be COVID positive. We don't want to be HIV <laughs> positive. But relatively, you want to be on the right side sure. of life, the right side of history. Nobody wants mm-hmm. to be on the wrong side of anything. Right. But what do you gain when you can be self-reflective and can take accountability and ownership? Like, what is, like... What's the value in that? Yeah, well, you you gain the experience so that you don't make the same mistakes over and over again. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what you gain. So, for instance, you know, I had a verbal conversation with someone who's working on my house. Mm-hmm. I leave the house. I come back and things are not the way that I asked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to say you're wrong for not. I'm going to say you're wrong for not listening to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to then say internally. Um, that I was wrong for not writing it down and having him sign it. Um, I was wrong for not sending the text message. Mm -hmm. Like there is, even if I know I told you to paint the wall green and you painted it red, it is my fault for not sending, do not forget to paint it green and Mm -hmm. having it documented. That is my fault. Mm -hmm. But no, we want to blame the contractor and say, how stupid could you be? I left the paint can there Mm -hmm. for you. Because we don't want to be wrong. Mm -hmm. However, as long as you continue to live in that space of denying where you've gone wrong, mm-hmm. you are going to continuously have the same problem. You're going to fire that contractor. Mm-hmm. You're going to hire a new one. You're going to tell that new contractor verbally what you want. When he does it wrong, you're mad at guy number two. Mm-hmm. Instead of taking accountability to say, from the first time I went wrong, I should have done blank. If sure. I would have done blank, I would have avoided mm-hmm. blank. No one wants to take accountability. And right. it's only going to bite you in the behind moving forward. Right, right. I see. So it's like kind of trying to avoid making the same mistakes over yeah, and over Yeah, that's again. what it saves you from. Mm-hmm. It's when you learn your lesson. I learned my lesson. And so moving forward, I'm going to do this differently. Now, this may not be a, the exact solution, right? This, we're like, let's, so let's go back to the contractor. So my resolution is next time I'm going to text you mm-hmm. a photo mm-hmm. of the exact color that I want. Mm-hmm. And then now... Well, we know that sometimes monitors and screens don't have exact shades. So, yeah, he painted it, What um, was it green? Whatever mm-hmm. color I wanted, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. He painted it green, but then now it's mint green, and mm-hmm. I wanted forest green. Mm-hmm. So I'm closer to a resolution, but what I should have done was bring him a color sample. Right, right. Take a photo of it, text it to him, and say, don't forget, you're picking up from Home Depot, color mm-hmm. sample blank, here is a photo, and I, I've handed you. You know, like, you... Not to say that your learning from your mistake is going to absolve you from any further mistakes at all, but it's going to help you to alleviate mm. the impact the next time and I the next see. time. And then you can then uh, fine tune your resolutions moving forward. Right. So right. you come from a traumatic or the end of a relationship. You have your five non-negotiables. You begin to date based on those non-negotiables because... You created your list based on what went wrong previously. As you're dating, you're realizing, okay, yes, he met all five, the new guy. 
he met all five, mm-hmm. but now I realize that number three wasn't as important. Mm-hmm. But one, two, mm-hmm. four, and five are still solid. You mm-hmm. crossed out three, you replaced three with whatever's new, and then you continue down that line. Right. That's why I advocate for dating lots of people. Ah, uh, okay. You should trial date, and error. Yeah, trial and error. And you do it respectfully. So, of course, you're not going to commit to one person and then continue to date on the side because that would be dishonest. But you should be dating. You should be having lots of conversations with people. You should be going out to coffee with three and four different people in a week if you can squeeze it into your schedule mm-hmm. because this is a vetting process but this is also an opportunity for you to reflect on what you actually want because by the end of it all all five might be crossed out and replaced with brand new things oh, interesting. you're making your mm-hmm. original list based on your past and the experiences of others but mm-hmm. as you go through your dating process you might realize that some things were not as important as you thought and some things trump other things and so you might compile a brand new list by the end mm-hmm. but you need to go through the dating process to even mm-hmm. No, this is what I need and that's that. Right. And I know like for your dating and relationship coaching, like your specific target is 35-year-old women who want to get married and maybe kind of internally they're feeling, they're feeling like the, the clock is, you know, what, like getting... Ticking. Yeah, yeah. ticking, right? Um, how do you encourage women like that to kind of like put themselves out there. I'm sure maybe some of these women have also dated quite a bit, figured out they have found, you know, refined their search or like, mm-hmm. I guess what's the experience with uh, women like that and maybe why do you target those women? Mm-hmm. So I work primarily with women about 35. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 33, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 35 and uh, 35 and up is what I say on paper, but in their 30s sure. and going into their early 40s. The reason why I work with that group is twofold. Well, probably threefold. One, that's my age group, right? So that's a group that I can identify with. We can crack jokes together. We see the same memes. Mm. We use the same slang, you know, so I'm familiar. Mm. Uh, But really, the most important part of it is that usually women who are in their mid-30s, they know who they are. Mm. They know what they want. They're usually relatively financially secure. They, their credit score is usually where they want it to be. Their finances <laughs> are where they want it to be. Mm-hmm. They're, um, they, you know, if they're driving or maybe they live in a metropolitan city, but they have money for a car if they wanted it, they would probably live on their own. They're solid in probably every element of their life except for romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. because they are so secure in every other element, they probably invested a lot of time in that, which means that they probably did not invest time in looking for a mate, which is why they are where they are mm-hmm. alone, right? So I like working with women. <laughs> Sorry. So um, I mean, it's true. You're investing a lot in your education and your career. You're not. You. There's only 24 hours in okay, a day. Okay. But okay. So let me pause on that for a second because I feel like this is. Um, this might be like a conversation of philosophy because I think there is some level of. There is one school of thought where it's like put yourself out there, do everything you got to do to find someone, right? And they're like you have to do the work. But I also feel like when you've there's this other side, which is there's so much of it that is out of your control. Like, um, the timing, finding the right timing. And like, there's all these like variables that have to like come together that maybe not necessarily in your control, but your school of thought is like, if you want to get the result, you have to put in the effort. Yes. There is no like, I don't believe I'm just in the living, second school. living life and like, I'll meet someone. I think you may eventually, but at what point? So, mm. um, if, so, I, like you mentioned, I work with women who either want marriage or, like, a significant commitment. Because some people don't believe in marriage mm-hmm. or don't care if they get it necessarily. But sure. they want that commitment. They want that partner. And um, 
all of the women I've worked with thus far want children. And mm-hmm. so that's where the biological clock comes in. Okay. So you could live life and you probably may come across someone when you're on a vacation in San Francisco strolling mm-hmm. down. But are you going to be 47 hmm. when you let it happen organically, right? I think that there are lots of people out there for you. I don't think that there's only one person. I think that school of thought only works if there is one person. So it will happen organically because it's meant to be and you just need to find that person. I don't think there's only one person mm. for every, you know, like a, a soulmate. Sure. I think that there are multiple people out there that you can have a loving, fulfilling relationship with for the rest of your life. So the, in that school of thought, you have to put out the work. I also think that, in I think that when you say in regards to that this thing is out of your control mm-hmm. and it's because it depends on the timing of the other person. Right, a lot of variables. Are, a lot mm-hmm. of variables. I would argue that everything that we've ever chased is dependent on other people in some form or fashion. Mm. So the fact that you went after this beautiful apartment in Staten Island that I can see New York City, there were lots of variables that could have caused you to not get this apartment. There could have been other people who came in whose application was stronger, who made more money, who had a a higher credit score. There had to be maybe a management company who looked at your application. There are lots of people that are a part of the process that gets you to you, to your goal. Mm -hmm. And you don't say, oh man, I'm never going to find an apartment because I need to depend on the management company. I need to depend on my credit score and I need to depend on my income. You say, Mm -hmm. this is my income. This is my credit score. Here's the application. This is the building I want. I'm going to put in the application, or, or maybe this is six months prior to the apartment. I'm going to increase my credit score by paying off all my debt. Mm-hmm. I'm going to find a higher paying job. I'm going to put in the work mm. so that it can help me to get to my end goal. Mm. Everything that we want is still dependent, unless you live in the middle of the Brazilian rainforest, is <laughs> dependent on other people. Right. If, if Brooklyn College, mm. anybody here went to CUNY, Your graduation depends on other people. Mm. Professors who put in the wrong grade for me, they gave me a a W, a withdrawal. They mixed me up with another Williams in the class. That could have stopped me from graduating. Mm. The the history department, the Mm. education department, classes are closed. You have to beg the professor if you can get in, send the email to, what do you call that, overdraft, over... Over tally, remember? Mm-hmm. You have to over tally, you have to send an email. I know the class is full, can you let oh, me in? Oh, yes! Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. Fitting in work, mm-hmm. fitting in chair mm-hmm. practice. Everything that you want out of life is dependent on the decisions of yeah. other people. Why do you think then for in this, like for relationships, there's, there is that like, it doesn't always quite translate that way. I don't think, I think it does. No, I mean, it does. I'm saying, I'm saying, why do you think there are two schools of thoughts of like people who are, who are these like go-getters and all these other areas of their life, but in their romantic life, they're not applying that same, um, like work ethic to it. Well, you just said it. I think it's, uh, romanticism, Mm. movies and television and books that, that this guy is going to come and sweep you off your feet. Uh. I was not swept (laughs) <laughs> and it doesn't mean that my husband isn't amazing, but he was not on a, a tall white horse. And mm. I was a maiden who needed to be saved. Mm. This is 2020. I don't, I don't even want to be that that maiden. Right. Man, I don't want to want a horse. Okay, so let's paint that picture. Like, when in modern times, like in times right now, like, if, if Andrew, your husband, like, swept you off your feet, what do you think people think in their minds? Like, what does that look like to them? Uh, in 2020, I would be pulled over in the rain on the Belt Parkway with a flat tire. <laughs> And I mean, this, this literally happened to my friend yesterday. So all right, let me give, I'll just be dramatic. <laughs> yesterday, yeah. my friend's aunt was, was dropping off some items to her house mm-hmm. and the aunt left her car in reverse and the car reversed into the gate, backed into the gate. The gate stopped it. 
a big dent in the car and now the gate is stuck and won't open so she can't even get her car out she can't mm -hmm. open the gate a construction worker happened to be walking past the house he saw them trying to get the gate because they literally were like locked in the house or locked in the front yard of the parking of the yeah. house and and he said you ladies okay and he said no we're having a struggle he said do you have a hammer she went upstairs she got the hammer he worked on it for a really long time and he was able to get the gate open she gave him 60 bucks he won he left and that was the end of the story she's married She's not interested. Okay. But my point is, mm -hmm. is that you are a damsel in distress uh, okay. mm -hmm. and some strapping man is going to come and save you. And that could have happened if, I don't even know if he was attractive. We didn't ask that because that wasn't the point of the story when she told right. me. But she could have been a single woman struggling in her home mm -hmm. and this guy came to save her. And if he were in her age range and handsome, she probably mm -hmm. would have said, hey, you know, I'm checking out your hand there. I don't see a ring. Would you be interested? And, you know, and or maybe if he were single, he would have said to her, right. would you like to go? I'm, I'm so glad I was able to help you. Don't give me the 60 bucks. Right. Would you be interested in going out? Right. right. It could have happened that way. Some I think sort that's of like serendipitous moment. Yes, yes. I some see. kind of organic, perfect. Like, oh, a spark happened. Like we met eyes across the room. But you know what I think it is? I think also people tell that story and it. Like, okay, this is, like, silly because it's a celebrity. Like, but Matthew McConaughey is on, like, a whole book tour right now. So he's, like, on every interview platform trying to, like, sell his book. He talks about how he met his wife, Camilla. And he's, like, they were in a club. And he saw this, like, beautiful woman with, like, a caramel shoulder, he would say. And he said, oh, I didn't say who is that. I said, what is that? And, like, that was the moment. He's, like, I never want to date anyone else ever again. I think we hear those stories and people want that, mm -hmm. you know? And, like, those stories... I clearly exist, you know, but like, um, like, is it, is it crazy to like want that? I think it's unnecessary. <laughs> okay. what do you mean? Who cares about the initial meeting once it wasn't like anything like abusive, like I was with my boyfriend and he was with his girlfriend and I stole him away, but who cares about if I met him at a bar or I met him at, on an app or I met him at a pool who cares about where you met or what the circumstances right. were once they weren't negative circumstances and even if they were perhaps you can parlay it into a positive thing i think what matters are the decades of life that you intend to live together right. who cares about five minutes but i care you, about 50 years but you must have also a spark or romance with your husband as well like when does that come into play of like there is a there is a thing like why there there's a reason there's so many love songs and movies about love and all this stuff because capitalism Okay. <laughs> and playing on our heartstrings. Really? That's what... I think so. Yeah. I, but I've always like thought that. so. Mm. I've always thought that, that like, R&B was a joke. Mm. Like, I, I think it's capitalism, and this is what people want to hear. We go through a moment that's similar to a song, and then we hold on to that song forever, and it's, that's our jam, because we were going through something at that time. I see. Uh, but... To answer your question, yes, there's romance in the relationship. Yes, there's a spark and there's an attraction. But I'm saying that, that that does not have to happen in the moments that we meet or the moment that we met doesn't have to be romantic. Hmm. It doesn't have to be. I'm out at the library struggling. I drop all my books and then you come sweep in and help me pick my books up. <laughs> or like, you know, all those Allison's rolling movies. her eyes right now. <laughs> yeah, like all those stupid movies. Yeah. So what are so what are you encouraging women to look for when they're looking for a partner or like maybe people in general? I would encourage them to first know what they want, make sure that's abundantly clear and outlined Two, be self-reflective on where they went wrong in their former relationships so they don't make the same mistakes over and over again. Mm -hmm. Three, try to become the best version of themselves mm -hmm. 
because we want to make sure that we are attracting the most ideal mate. So we need to be the most ideal mate. Right. So if that means that you're going to push yourself in your career, you're going to go back to school, you're going to try to get fit, you're going to drink more water, you're going to clear up your skin, you're going to read self-help books, you're going to do whatever it is. Mm. You're going to go to therapy mm. to clear up some of your perhaps prior childhood traumas. Yeah. Become the best version that exists of you, that could exist of you in this universe so that you are attracting the ideal mate. So paint that picture for us because we all have that very clear vision of the romantic partner, right? That movies and whatever have painted for us. What's the picture that we really should kind of, what's the vision we should have for, for partnership? I, I don't... Which I, which I will say, it looks different for every single person, mm-hmm. but like in the more realistic sense, like how do we kind of move away from this like, false idealized image of what marriage and partnership has been presented to us well i don't let me take a step back so when i talk about the movies and television shows i don't think that they necessarily paint an idealized picture of marriage i think that they probably have a more accurate picture of marriage i think everyone has an understanding that marriage is hard you always say marriage is hard no one says marriage is easy so i don't think that society has like this idealized vision of marriage i think they have an idealized picture of the love at first sight that's the part that i think is fake uh Uh, so to get away from this the expectation that it's supposed to be like organic and i just see you and i instantly fall in love with you and i just want to know everything about you and 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 to to get away from that you have to understand that television is fake movies are fake music is fake we live in a capital a capitalistic society people are selling you a dream Mm. they're selling you a vision Mm -hmm. and so instead what matters is longevity can you get along with this person? Are you compatible in terms of your personality? Mm. Do you share the same goals, life goals? Mm. Do you share the same values? Mm. Is your life goal to have uh, five children living um, off of a, a, a lake shore? And is his vision to live in a condo in a high rise with no children? You got to make sure that you have the same goals. You have to make sure that you have the same values. Those are the things that matter, mm. not where did we meet and how romantic and cute it was. I also think that a lot of times when people tell those stories at parties, they're exaggerating too. Mm. Don't listen to those things. People mm. lie. People exaggerate. People hide their truths with these painted pictures mm. that they'll say, we met at a party and in reality, y'all both were married and were cheating on your, your spouses <laughs> with each other. Yeah. You know, so don't believe the hype. Okay. Don't that could be the name of the episode. Don't believe the hype. <laughs> um, really quick pause. It's 1030 now. I want to be mindful of your time. Should we start wrapping up? Yes, please. Okay. Um, I'm like, now how do we wrap this up? <laughs> well, you know what? I wanted to come back to your what you were saying about uh, why you're so like loud and like sure, full, full or sure of yourself, however you wanted to phrase it. But I don't think we'll have time for that. But maybe offline you could tell me. <laughs> um, let's see. So... Okay, so idealized paint itself. Um, all right, so why don't we why don't we kind of wrap things up here? Which is for anyone who might be listening and maybe in the position um, that you know they want to find a mate, maybe they're struggling. What are some words of advice or first steps you would recommend to somebody? Uh, the same steps. Okay. Know what you want. Yep. Reflect on where you went wrong. Mm-hmm. Work on being the best version of you. And then getting out there. And even if I know that COVID makes getting out there difficult, if you have been hesitant about getting on an app, sorry, get on it. Mm. That's just the practical methodology to use during these times. Okay. And anyone can do that right now. I mean, really, the first 
two steps actually is quite a lot. You have to sit down and think about what you want and then you have to be self-reflective. That's a lot of things you can do in quarantine by yourself. Yes, And that takes a lot of energy and time, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, we'll end it there. And yeah, just thanks so much. This was so fun. And I'm like super excited because I've learned all this stuff about you that I didn't know before. But I know. thank you for coming. I need my on. own podcast so I can interview you. You do need your own and podcast. Make you cry. Is this someone who's famous for making people cry? Because that's Barbara be you. Walters. Yeah. You're the new Barbara Walters. <laughs> you are the only person who's cried so that's far. That's not true. Are we still recording? Is this oh, still recording? Oh, there was one other person. Friendship. The, the first one. She did tear up a little bit. Yeah. See? Mm hmm. <laughs> Nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with it. I'm not like trying to make you cry. You're just asking really good questions. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay, we'll end there then. Okay. Thank you for listening. To support us, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast and share it with your friends. Special thanks to Chris Weldon for the original music and Tojin U for her creative design. I'm your host, Parker, and thank you for joining us on Nunk Podcast.